Pronto. This is Learning Matters, a bridge to practice, and I'm your host, Scott Macklin, here at Studio Yara at Trinity Western University in beautiful British Columbia. Today we have with us Cheryl Reimer-Kirkham, who serves as Dean and Professor of the School of Nursing at Trinity Western University. Cheryl, welcome. Tell me something good. Something good, Scott, for sure. For me this morning, um, maybe a bit of a surprise, but something good is being part of a higher education community, that it is an amazing privilege to be so, even during a pandemic. So while it's crazy, it's take me out of this zone, if I was going to be anywhere in any workplace in the context of this COVID-19 pandemic, this is a good situation that we're in a higher education context. It's actually pretty good. And I, for one, I'm so glad that you are in this position because someone who is full of care and brings care to what they do is really what's needed in these circumstances. And we'll, we'll get into care in a bit. But first of all, talk to me, you know, this isn't your first time heading into a fall term. <laughs> in some ways, this is a first time heading into a fall term under these extraordinary yeah. conditions. What are some of the, the differences and shifts that you've had to make as we get ready for this uh, new term? Yeah, you're so right. So in some ways, everything is familiar, everything is the same. And in some ways, everything is different. Nothing is familiar at all. So the shifts have to do with um, both Scott at a quite um, high level. So right. So in March, we were already anticipating what are we going to be doing in the fall. So when I say a high level, it's a kind of a forward looking shift to try to anticipate what are all 13 weeks of this semester going to look like? Are we going to be um, uh, able to keep our students in face-to-face clinical context? Are we going to be able to keep teaching our students face-to-face in the lab? So we've put in checks and balances for that. So part of the planning is this really long-term, in a sense, I mean, I guess we always plan for the full semester, but it's a different questions we're asking. And then for our students, who are our students? Where are our students? How can we support them? So at the, that detail um, is probably what's different is, we've, is the detail on the kinds of questions we're needing to ask is what's different. Yeah, so it is a different time for sure. So I think one of the things you might say where the song remains the same, and I'm going to quote Maya Angelou here when she said, as a nurse, we have the opportunity to heal the heart, mind, soul, and body of our patients, their families, and ourselves. They may not remember your name, but they will never forget the way you made them feel. Yeah. So that's something that I've seen you are dedicated and motivated from. How how is that still informing the roles that you get to play? Yeah, exactly. So it would be easy to slide into a more um, sort of a technological um, foregrounding or, you know, our priorities are getting all the technologies in place or all of the, you know, we use simulation and nursing to, to do practice learning. So that could be the, the piece we want to foreground. But what we're needing to keep reminding ourselves, it's actually the relational piece we need to keep mm. foregrounded. So if we do exactly like uh, this quote by Maya, if we can keep the relational piece in the foreground, honestly, we can do it. We have got incredible, um, so specifically in the School of Nursing at Trinity, we have incredible capacity, incredible people. But in the nursing profession, we have incredibly people go into nursing. Um, oh, some people go in because it's a stable job, but really people go in very um, motivated toward the common good. And when you can tap into that and keep people reminding them of their purpose for being here in that very relational way, then yeah, it is totally about how you're making people feel. And that's what's going to be remembered. Mm. So talk to me a little bit about the roles. You know, I think you are now heading, I think you have one year under your belt (laughs) as dean. Yeah. What does it mean to be a dean of the School of Nursing and how does that play with and alongside the various roles you have at Trinity Western. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so um, multiple hats is a, probably <laughs> a reality for almost everybody at Trinity, though, right? Like most right. faculty actually are wearing multiple hats and, and uh, no less for myself. So the dean role is um, 
is a way the dean is the is the bridge in a sense between the provost's office and um, the senate at that level and the faculty in the school of nursing. So I'm I'm facing both ways, and lots of times in those kinds of leadership positions that can actually a bit be a bit challenging, right? Because you're facing facing towards the university overall and um, um, being a part of speaking into. Um, decisions that come through the provost's office so speaking into more academic leadership decisions but at the same time we're we're then um implementing but also almost like translating them at the school of nursing level right so how are we going to do it what does this mean so it really is a a role that um and and our dean portfolios at trinity um at some universities if you're a dean you um uh, you, it would be over multiple faculties, uh, which um, some of our deans have more programs under them than others. But I think just as being a small university, a dean role is, um, we need to understand it as a bit of a smaller scale <laughs> than uh, some other universities. But that said, in a small university, we got, um, we can speak into a lot of important decisions. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't necessarily want to go down the road of mustard seed metaphors, but it may be a small university, but the School of Nursing has huge impact, not only yeah. regionally, nationally within Canada, but but globally. Yeah. Talk to me yeah. about, you know, the Trinity Western Nursing Program. Yeah. So um, we did a great mapping of it uh, just yesterday with our faculty together, yeah. School of Nursing, to sort of try to understand who we are, where have we come from, right? you got to look back to figure out where you're going. So we um, started in 1993, and this is something that not is not known by um, everybody, but the, at the time, uh, there was only one four-year BSN program in the province. And so the province came to Trinity Western to ask if it might, in 1993, early 90s, launch a four-year baccalaureate program. So it's kind of cool in that way, is that we've had such close workings with um, contributing to health services in British Columbia right from the beginning, because they needed us, they asked us. Right. So it's kind of cool. Uh, that was our start. So we started with 32 students back in 1993, first grad class in 1997. And um, fast forward from there, 2009 is when we started our master's program and at that time we were taking in probably about 54 students a year into the baccalaureate and the baccalaureate is in lots of ways of quite a traditional program in that it is plain and simple a four-year degree it's a four-year nursing program and a lot of uh, programs are having different entry points some of them have a compressed nursing piece but we've kept it for good reason as a pretty square box four years (laughs) rectangle four years Um, then so we started the master's program but we put all of our innovation into our master's program in having we were early on and doing a hybrid model in 2009 and many, many universities have followed suit since and for their nursing master's programs. And now more recently to go to a um, fully online access program. I mean, obviously with the pandemic, people are inadvertently going there, but we very intentionally last fall, we're moving towards also having a one access point for the MSN online as um, being as being fully online. So that's that piece. And then the third piece for the School of Nursing is to, um, we have are anticipating our site visit for a doctoral program. So we've had lots of yeah. questions about when are you starting your doctoral program? And we were to have our site visit in uh, March, but stalled a bit with the pandemic. So just waiting to hear the word for our visit in, um, in the fall. So I want to walk back. It was about a year ago, almost to the day, that we worked together for a couple days in a, oh, in yeah. the what space in Langley. It? We called it a design jam. Yes, that's right. And we, you know, it was basically, you know, my father's a minister and he would say, you aren't going to allow to leave the church until we fill these offering buckets, right? And we said, <laughs> we're not going to leave this room until we work out the design goals, the learning objectives, so we can backwards design this online yeah. learning program. Yeah. So we had an we had a, a design jam with our instructional designers and our online team and faculty from the School of Nursing. And, you know, okay, these things are hard work, but it wasn't that it was like arduous work where it was like, this was we had a fun time, if we can say as such. We absolutely did. So talk to me just a little bit about the framing of why an online program for nursing. And now that we've piloted some of these courses, 
what what have you all learned that's going to help as we work on the iteration of the next set of courses? Yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah. I would say the why has to do with um, really it is about accessibility. So um, knowing that um, by require our, our main program for the MSN requires nurses come onto campus in Langley for four weeks in, in May. And that in-person residency was pure magic, is pure magic um, in building relationships, being together, kind of learning the culture of the School of Nursing. And then everything else was online. And then there's a a final week in May, in June, um, when students are finishing their first year, when we would go into Ottawa to the have a on face to face health policy residency. So the program design, as it stands, uh, the MSN program, I still think that is a fantastic model. And any student who could possibly, as an example, come to you, to Ottawa for that face to face health policy must do. Yeah, but. For access, when you think about who nurses are, they're often in a phase of life when they've got kids that they're involved in um, raising families, they are doing shift work, they are um, all not always able to attend this residency. Also, we do have an international reach, and so that also has been an issue. Can students get to campus? Do they really want to take this program? Because we are pretty unique as a, a master's level faith-based program. They do. Um, there are several options through the U.S., but exactly this version of an online version, kind of the Canadian angle on it from a Christian perspective, we're pretty unique. So we have had some some international interest. So that's right. a cool thing about having it uh, accessible now through the online. So you said, what was the pilot like? Should I talk about that? Yeah, yes, please. Keep going. Okay. Yeah. So the the pilot, uh, so it wasn't so, as I explained it, it wasn't, it's not actually that much rejigging we have to do to create it. So it's not like we were rejigging an entire program to move to online. It was really three courses that were residency courses that we've restructured to be um, online courses. So everything else is already running online. So we so appreciated the work that we did, Scott, with your instructional online instructional team to help us think through um, we did have to do some rethinking. So going to from face-to-face to online does take, it is a bit of a different philosophy behind what you're doing. In a sense, you have to be more um, structured. It's not quite as organic in the moment like it might be in the classroom. So the work is to take your course and it's not just, um, it, really the work was in anticipating over 12 lessons online what we would do in two weeks face-to-face so in a sense that's not that algorithm can you know 10 to 12 okay we can manage those numbers for lessons but it's more that you do need to commit (laughs) that this is how it's going to go because you don't have quite the ability to pivot which we often do in graduate studies so in graduate studies in a seminar it's all the times like hey well look we'll pick that up tomorrow we'll continue that conversation so it's not that so that's been a bit hard so I would say that's one of the rethinking through in that kind of a transition from face-to-face to pilot that's is to online is some um, some of the work that needs to be done I imagine one of the bigger challenges is you know I talk a lot about in that move from face-to-face and online it's really the move from just transmission of content to transaction of activity to transformation and relationship building and at Trinity Western, there's such a, uh, an embrace of that high experience, transformative, relational building. And particularly, I would imagine, within the nursing profession, like you, you said in response to the Maya Angelou quote, it's that relationship, which is so key. You know, my grandmother was often quoting Benjamin Franklin, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm, Nice. Yeah. How have you been able to design, and this takes intentionality, the notion of actually nurturing and building these relationships if the the frame of online is transmission or screen-based? How do we move from transmission to relationship? And how have you found making that move? 
Yeah, that really was our big um, worry going into this because, in fact, one of our taglines for the master's program is a community of nurse scholars. So like this community piece, the relational piece is just uh, foundational to the program. So I was, that was, I think you'll uh, remember in our first conversation, Scott, that's exactly Mm -hmm. the angst we were bringing into the room. And we had picked up the language from a consultant we had been working with around the humanization of the online experience. So I would say that's a piece of it, but to humanize doesn't necessarily mean that you've got a full on, um, the relational, like it's humanizes is, is, is some um, definitely an aspect of it. So I was so pleasantly surprised at how it did feel like there was a relationship uh, and a nice collegiality that, that formed among the first cohort coming through. So I actually haven't quite teased out all of what made that happen. I think it is quite important work for us to continue teasing that out. And it's part of us is going back to our, we've just um, wrapping up our evaluations for the second course in that cohort. So part of it's going back to the evaluations to see what was it that made this successful. But it is, I think it wasn't, if I was going to say, what what do I think is going to show up as the, the ingredients for this? It's, it is the intentionality around it. So you're not going to have relationship and transformation if you're not intentional about it. I don't think it, it's not really a byproduct um, unless you're pretty intentional about it. So we started early on by messaging them, like telling them that you are a special group. Like, like you guys are a group and you are going to travel together on this journey and you are going to be studying together for over for two, three, four years. And so actually the relationships you form aren't just for this course. There's massive payoff. Um, this is, these are the people you're going to, text at night and say, how did you do on this? These are the people you're going to call. So we, we really messaged that from the beginning to say, this is in your best interest to get connected. And the first uh, couple of lessons, especially the first lesson, it was, um, we didn't kind of jump into the substance of the course per se. The first lesson was kind of getting familiar with the technologies, but also it was relationship building. So our webinar, the first, you know, lots of introductions, using introductions uh, and different weeks, every week's kind of starting with a opener, but um, they don't necessarily see that this is a, still part of relationship building but it is it is that so different sort of activities different mixing that allows us to get to know each other as people and what these uh, nurses are passionate about sure i want to ask you prayer as transgression the social relations of prayer in healthcare settings it's one of your books talk to me about prayer as transgression yeah, super excited about that book. It should be coming out in September. Yes, exactly. And coming from it as a Christian perspective, we had when we said gave that title to some of the people involved in our project, they got kind of scared and they said, "Well, we don't think that we don't think prayer is is uh, it's not it's not as lead us not into transgression. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, uh, it's not that that kind of transgression. It's using transgression in a some of the social scientists have used it. Um, uh, Foucault, um, Tony Morrison, writing about uh, bell hooks, writing about transgression as um, resistance and transformation brought together. Mm. So, how can does prayer cross uh, expectations, cross social lines, challenge institutional structures? So that's how we use transgression. And so we were looking at um, prayer in hospital settings in hospitals in London, UK, and in Vancouver. And prayer is transgressive. It's kind of crazy. It's transgressive because a lot of clinical services are really high tech and as they should be. So it's not a critique of that. They're high tech, high science, highly biomedical, highly specialized. So when you bring in prayer, that it is transgressive to think that there's something metaphysical or transcendent that we're also bringing with us into healthcare in this very um, expert social human world. We are acknowledging that there's something bigger. So prayer acknowledges that there's something bigger. So an example we have in the first chapter of the book is... Um, a man who was all scheduled to go for surgery, he was opening the slate. His, his case was the first slate in the morning. And he was down in the pre-op waiting room the, um, uh, where he was 
all the final preparations were being done for his surgery. And he just goes, stop, stop, stop everything. I'm not going through those doors until the chaplain, um, the spiritual health practitioner, the chaplain comes to pray with me. I'm not doing this. Well, what are they going to do? He's like absolutely not consenting to have his surgery. And so calling the chaplain, chaplain runs down, he has his prayers, and he goes in, everything's great. But that was transgressive of the clinical pace, the, the clinical um, context. So while, um, while, for the most part, healthcare services in Canada are not delivered by faith-based institutions, right? So we've sort of moved into a more very secularized healthcare setting. It then means that prayer, religion comes in with people more, right? So it's like, are the individual people looking for prayer more so than is the institution running the prayer through the um, intercom system like it was when I was a nursing student back at the Grace Hospital. Shout out to Salvation Army in Winnipeg. Right, right, so right. we, right, so that was the, 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 the chaplain would pray over the intercom and everybody would have their morning prayer. So, so healthcare services are highly secularized. And so the idea was, you'll see when the, you see the cover of the book is we have a, a window and the idea is that prayer is a window to what might be the beyond or the metaphysical, but prayer uh, in health sir, is also a window into how we do um, religion in the public sphere. So how do we work out things of the spirit, things of religion in the public sphere? So the book is going to tell us a lot about that as well. The project had a lot to say about that. So that was a super, that's probably one of, it was a very meaningful research project. You know, I'm going to say, give you another example. I think our listeners will be interested in yeah. how this gets worked out. So in the London setting, what really had to get worked out was prayer spaces for Muslim staff and patients. And that was not without conflict to work out what is an appropriate space. And so they actually were kind of like had a migrant space for a while until they could work through uh, the hospital creating in a very centralized location. It's, it actually is in a central atrium. It's a tent. It's very cool. And that tent, uh, especially on Friday prayer, is one of the most active places in the hospital um, with caregivers coming and going to say their prayers. And so that was a, is a kind of like a negotiation of how do we do, how does prayer enter into healthcare settings? And it had to, it, the, the, um, the secular spaces and administrations of healthcare had to make space and say, yeah, actually, we do have an obligation to accommodate these practices. So what do you think the equivalent of that was in Canada? Well, it was Indigenous prayers and Indigenous ceremony, right? So the one hospital we worked in, not so it is unequal still in Canada, but their uh, hospitals are, are really trying to be responsive. So there's a lovely space in one of the hospitals where we were working that is an Indigenous sacred space. It's called an all nation sacred space. It's vented so they can do smudging. It's um, a beautiful rug and carpet so people can sit in circle. It's really has a lovely layout. And but that is not without negotiation. That doesn't just happen. And the secular uh, services again have to open up and say, actually, this is really important. You cannot ever claim to give person centered care if you don't have these kinds of spaces for for. Um, people groups where faith is and ceremony and ritual are like integral to life. You don't do life without it and you absolutely don't do illness without it. So the, 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 you frame transgression is that coupling or, or is it a nexus of resistance and that sort of proaction? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So in some cases and in some cases, um, we try to show how it's uh, there's variance. So, so there's sort of not like one answer. I'll tell you another cool thing. So these small, these spaces were really fascinating. So in uh, these two examples I've given you, they created designated spaces that were distinct. But in another hospital in London, they created, which was probably my favorite space, which was a very fluid space. And so when I walked into the room, it was just a long, uh, it's a rectangle. I walked in on the side of the rectangle, a long room at one end behind. So curtains were pulled aside. I could see that there was an altar at one end, but um, very simple. And if the curtains were pulled, you wouldn't know that there was a Christian altar at that end of the room. Then when I look at the other end of the room, oh, look, there's a prayer mat. And though the... a clock in a, uh, the direction to Mecca also posted on the wall, but also a set of curtains. Oh, look. So 
if I if that curtain was pulled, I wouldn't know that there was a space here for Muslim prayer. But at the same time, we could open all of the spaces and actually imagine. Um, so they didn't ever have. Um, they were careful a little bit around scheduling to sort of say if there was a Christian mass, there wouldn't they would do it outside of the times for Muslim prayer. But but it was this fluid space that could move back and forth. And if somebody didn't want any religious symbolism, they could close those curtains. They had a beautiful kind of um, generic space that was very aesthetic that could still be a space of um, silence. And so I think what you're saying is is resistance, transformation. Um, prayer sometimes was welcome. Prayer often isn't welcome and it shouldn't need to be. Um, so we try to map out those variations. Well, as we make our way through the portfolio of goodness that you're involved with, talk to me about the work that you're doing in Tanzania, South Africa, and Ghana, because that's fascinating. Yeah, that project... Um, uh, came to us by surprise, Scott, yeah. by surprise. And sometimes that feels like it's providential when we have those kinds of surprises when we don't go looking for them. Yeah. So back in November of 2016, 2015, I've got to get that date right, um, The uh, we were contacted by the UN Independent Expert on the Enjoyment of Human Rights by Persons with Albinism. It's a fantastic title. We should all have such a long title. And she um, wanted to meet with us. And myself and my colleague, Barb Astle, um, global health researcher in the School of Nursing, we, I don't know, we were kind of put her off a little bit because we're kind of busy. We had, and we had our research project. I was very busy with the prayer project. And, you know, we, we were actually pretty busy. Our research portfolios were full. But she was kind of persistent. And so we met with her. And it's so compelling when we met with her. It was clear, absolutely clear, we were going to be involved. And that was because she said, I need you in particular because researchers from university from Trinity Western are going to get the importance of spiritual practices in the context of albinism. Not everybody gets it. And what I mean by getting it is that, especially in Afri African context, there's African cosmology has, has had views over time of persons with albinism as though they're subhuman or superhuman. And that has meant that they have faced a lot of stigma and discrimination um, because they're not really seen as part of um, African community, which can be so important. But not only discrimination and stigma, but in about 2008, the story broke of persons with albinism in Africa being hunted, being mutilated, being murdered for um, their sale on the black market of body parts be, to be used in potions for good luck. And it's a crazy story. Every time I say it, I say, go in like, oh my goodness, this is crazy sounding. But if you Google um, BBC there, BBC is, uh, the story was broken through a woman in Tanzania, correspondent, um, BBC correspondent in Tanzania. So the piece here is that the implications and the ties through harmful practices associated with witchcraft. And while from a northern, global northern perspective, we might say, well, just get over that and you know we just need to educate everybody that that witchcraft shouldn't have a part in your life it's not real just get on with your world from a global south perspective we've heard so loudly and so clearly that you cannot gloss over the influence of um, witchcraft practices and it's actually pretty complex to tease out what are traditional healing practices which we'd want to honor and where does that turn um, nefarious to infringe on very seriously on the welfare and security of persons with albinism. So, okay, long preamble. That's yeah. how we got into it. And so what we're doing, we've asked, have a research program. We've got fantastic researchers, a team in Canada that includes a, a history of human rights a scholar, a political sciences scholar, a religious studies scholar, Barb and myself. We're the core Canadian team. We've got a researcher, a philosopher from Nigeria. He's just transitioning to London. We've got um, legal studies scholar in South Africa. We have uh, a lot of community-based partners who are working with us. And our work for this project, we've had, we're into our third or fourth funded project. But right now we're working on a project on mothering in Tanzania, South Africa, and Ghana. And 
And the, the reason for mothering is a lot of attention has, so, so totally taking the drive from the UN independent expert as to where our research should be going. So she said, this is a gap. We don't know enough about what the ex- mothering experience is like, because a lot of attention has been given to the children and how to make sure they have their education. Um, but really, what is it like for mothers? And so we have got very stern, or we've finished our Tanzania data collection before um, the change in travel with the pandemic. But examples of mothers um, at birth um, being absolutely abandoned, if they've given birth to a child with albinism, absolutely abandoned because healthcare providers don't recognize what's going on and um, are fearful of a child with albinism. So we are also collaborating now with schools of nursing. We're just having a uh, just um, have our partners now in South Africa, Ghana, and um, Tanzania to work with. It's not going to be us Canadians going, hey, this is what you should be doing, right, right, but right. working with our partners there and say, okay, you know what? We are just, I mean, the principle really of allyship, right? Like we are just walking alongside. How can we support? Look, this is what we found in our research. What do you think we could do about this? How could we support you? So so that really is the model. So our, our stakeholder groups in that are especially important are the um, the NGOs, obviously, that are working with persons with albinism, then the schools of nursing, and then we're reaching out to faith communities. Interestingly enough, so where I've talked on about the secularism of Canadian healthcare services, the in places like Tanzania, the um, influence of an affiliation with religion is super high. So most people would say they were either Muslim or Christian, and some use the language of African traditional religion, but very high affiliation. And faith leaders really see themselves, and I don't think they were overstating, but they're like pretty influential. So if right. we can give them some resources to speak with their congregants, that's um, so we're we're moving in that direction. So again, like totally just more giving resources, facilitating allyship, but um, knowing this is, a, I mean, that's a big question we could talk about, Scott, about what does it mean for researchers from the global north to be involved in the global south? And of course, we're not the first ones facing that question. So we're teasing that out. Well, and, and particularly given the, uh, the the feel that's in the air with Black Lives Matter, yeah. and um, yeah. how does that really uh, help or cause or force, Rousseau would say, we're going to force you to be free. Those of us who come from where our buckets of privilege are pretty full, how do we shift that? But still committed to doing the work. So one of the things that I found really fascinating, and we'll include a link to this in the show notes, is that you all held a a nursing cafe on gender albinism and human rights, but it was really centered with – Ekponwosa Arrow. Yes, and the, the work, UN expert. Yeah, and the work and her work. Yeah, yeah. Um, is she is she located here in BC? Yes. Yeah. You got no. it. I mean, you might have fun interviewing her. So, so Ik yeah. is. Um, she is African diaspora, and um, her uh, she works. Um, her position is between the UN United Nations. So, other than a pandemic, she does spend a lot of time in Geneva. Um, but now she is, because she's also working for Under the Same Sun, which is a, uh albinism NGO that's located in Surrey, of all things. So it's started by a local man who has connections, his, uh, connections to Trinity. His uh, son is a student at Trinity. Shout out to you, Brayden. <laughs> and um, Peter Ash is as the founder of that organization. And so we have partnered with them. They're the organization together with, with IK, right? So that they have been very, they have reshaped the global narrative. I kid you not. This organization and UN's, uh, IK's UN mandate has reshaped the global narrative of albinism it's like super exciting it's one of them and ik has been receiving um awards for her influence her as a social changer as a, she's a young woman really changing the world and so she is local she's a grad from uh, university of alberta ubc alum i think her law degree is from you know oh, gonna okay not gonna tell you where her law degree yeah. is from she's a human rights lawyer So Cheryl, I want to I want to walk back a little bit, but before we go way back, um, 2019, you were recognized by the UBC School of Nursing with a Medal of Distinction, and in 2014, you were selected to join the Royal Society of Canada's College of New Scholars, Scientists, and Artists. Recognition is always great. You have to put the work in to get there. Talk to me about those two sort of moments. 
And then, and then I want to lean into another question. Yes, thank you. Well, I'm. Um, you're absolutely right. It's totally humbling to be acknowledged by your. In the one case, it was um, the academy across the country, and a very interdisciplinary. And then more recently, as an alumni of uh, University of British Columbia, when they celebrated their, that was pretty cool. Their 100th anniversary as a school of nursing, mm-hmm. and so they had identified 100 of their alum that they saw as we we joked about it that we were the luminaries, but whatever that means, <laughs> we had. <laughs> Um, but that was very, very honoring to be part of that. And, and nobody ever um, comes to these places of um, acknowledgement without, of course, having had a whole community journeying alongside them, right? So I don't at all see that really as, as my fantastic accomplishment, but rather to say I've been fortunate to work in context, be mentored by people, and find very meaningful projects with teams that start to bring um, attention that, 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 and the the work of those teams needs to be of attention. Um, the Royal College is pretty cool. So I was in the inaugural cohort for the for the college, um, and that has really given me fantastic connections. It's both speaking in, and the college has been pretty activist uh, in speaking into higher education in Canada and, and what can um, what can university scholars bring to the good of society. Um, but as an example of the connections I've made through it, which is exactly what the society would entail, as I told you about the human rights historian who's on the project. And I bumped into Dr. Ibawa at one of the um, events that I was at with the college and we got chatting and it was just the best thing ever. So it's it's been very, uh, opens a lot of doors in a sense. It's given me uh, opportunities for conversations that have been very important, very meaningful. So. Talk to me a little bit about an influential teacher. It could be someone in the classroom yeah. or outside the classroom who helped shape who you are who you are and who you're continuing to becoming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think a lot of UBC grads, mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna speak to two people. Um, I'm gonna talk to about two people that were super influential on my journey. My graduate degrees are both from UBC. So one is Sally Thorne, who is was has been um, the lead for the program there. Sally Thorne is a like a nurse intellectual. You want to meet a nurse intellectual? Uh, Sally Thorne, at the same time, she's such a champion for for nurses at the point of care. So she um, set incredible high benchmarks for myself in, in uh, let's say, in my master's thesis even already. And, you know, how do you create an intellectual argument that has practical, that, that isn't just in the head, but that you actually can figure out how it's going to change practice. But she's the one who's always said, oh, isn't this so much fun? So the whole thing is framed as nothing short of fun. And I find myself with my faculty going, oh, this could be fun. And I'm like, oh dear. Okay, this is Sally. <laughs> this is Sally coming out. But all of us, really, it's just to sort of take the pleasure of that, of this. I mean, it's a great honor. And and then my other um, colleague is Dr. Joan Anderson. So she was my supervisor. She's emeritus at the UBC. And Joan really is a super, really a leading scholar in Canadian nursing that has been very influential into the U.S., this particular movement, and globally around bringing um, critical perspectives into nursing philosophy. So that meaning, I can tell you about bell hooks, I can tell you Michael Foucault, because we were supposed to learn that about nursing. We were, that was supposed to influence us in our doctoral studies. So Joan really was the lead in bringing critical perspectives into nursing. So still have a lot of contact with her and a group that we get together on a, with a think tank uh, yeah. annually and got a couple of initiatives together. So UBC is really seen um, nationally as the lead in bringing out these critical perspectives. So those are my two mentors what was the pathway for you into nursing and then wanting to further your scholarship to pursue a PhD in nursing yeah pretty organic really unfolding if somebody had told me so I did go into um, nursing um, at 19 right out of high school I guess 18 right out of high school um, into a two-year nursing diploma course. And I was, I had had family, um, family, yeah. anybody who has, uh, you know, had aunties who were nurses. And so they would tell me stories. And so I was always pretty intrigued with that. And, you know, at the time, what were my choices? Okay, well, I'll start into nursing. And I was, it was a really good fit for me. So the, I worked on in surgical units. I worked in mother, babe, um, labor and delivery and loved the relational aspect. Okay, so there's a theme. So I love the relational aspect worked really well for me. 
and again, this idea of contributing to something bigger than myself. Um, so that was great. Uh, at the time, the Canada was moving towards what was called BSN as entry to practice. And it meant that you, I started with a two-year diploma, then Canada was moving towards all registered nurses were to have a university degree. So I went to UVic and uh, to do a two-year post-RN program. And that kind of caught my attention. I was like, oh, well, besides loving Victoria, I came from Winnipeg. So uh, besides thinking it was a great place to live. But the idea of um, nurses op- nursing opening up beyond what happens in a hospital to community-based centers, nurses being involved in policy. So that started to whet my attention. And I had done, um, I guess I am a bit of a natural student because I had done a Bachelor of Biblical Studies in between. So I had been basically in school all the way through. I was really wanting to think theologically about my profession. So from UVic, then I started to teach and I taught at a community college. And then again, life happens. And what the expectation then was, as we were moving towards this, uh, still this entry to practice, you need to have a BSN. So the Mm -hmm. college was, if you were going to teach in a BSN program, you couldn't teach BSNs only having a BSN. You needed to have your master's. And a lot of my colleagues were doing that that degree um, locally at UVic, but that wasn't the right fit for me. So I ended up coming over to UBC to do my master's in education, uh, master's of science in nursing is what it was called. And just like our program is here at Trinity. So then that was in the 90s. I graduated with that in 95. And while doing my thesis, my, my lowly thesis as a master's student, I totally got the research bug. Like, Massively uh. infected, and my mentors, Sally, Dr. Thorne, and Dr. Anderson, saying, "Cheryl, you need to keep going," and a few other things happening in my life at the same time that made it feasible for me to stay in Vancouver to just. So I just I went straight through and did my doctoral study. So it really was, I don't know. It's this. It's um, yeah. I guess it is a bit. Is nursing as a intellectual or a scientific discipline it's it is has this fantastic practice component but there's also these all in the world of higher education and theories and ideas and all of that is really important to the profession so yeah that's how I got to be a PhD prepare a a doctor nurse we we joke about that right a PhD in nursing is a doctor nurse yeah and you know it's it's really that, that 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 interplay of the multimodality of thinking about research the practical reality of that point of care as you're talking about. I want to talk a little bit about the teaching aspect. Now you're holding all of those in in concert. And I love that phrase, nurses at the point of care. I want to dive Mm -hmm. into teaching at the point of care. And I want you to walk into your process, particularly your design process when thinking about it could be a syllabus or a particular lesson how do you go about framing that lesson so it's always already at the point of care? Mm-hmm. Mm, boy, that's kind of a oh, good question, Scott. I'm going to think. I'll be thinking a little bit as I'm responding. Yeah. Um, well, I think toward what end is always the question that mm-hmm. nurses ask. So, so we're kind of. It's a natural question because we know it all has to have practical application toward what end. So we don't get to play with ideas for the sake of playing with ideas. So lesson design. So I was working with um, another colleague. Uh, so this was part of our flip from very pivot in April to go from what was supposed to be a one-week residency course to what became, uh, we did it over about two weeks, uh, online intensive with this pandemic requiring us to flip so already we would we were we were planning this course we've run it before that has um contemplative practices built into it that has um it's a, the course is spirituality in the helping professions. And so it's, it's not a clinical course per se, but it has massive reality for our undergraduate students. And there's always a couple of grad students that take it as well. So Scott, then what happened is when the pandemic was rearing its ugly head and I was like, so at one point I was talking to my colleague and going like, what are we doing? Like, ah, let's, let's postpone the course to the fall. Ah, this is too terrible. How can we be running this course in the middle of a pandemic about spirituality? And then it was like, ah, uh, listen to yourself. Yes, <laughs> this is the time to teach the course. Yes, of course you need to teach this during the pandemic. That's exactly when we need this. Um, so how to make that practical for the point of care? You know, the well-being of... <clears throat> Or care providers. I think that is one of the, we've learned so many lessons during the pandemic. And I think that's one of the lessons is that uh, healthcare services require so much of the care providers of the caregivers. 
And if we don't look after who we are as caregivers, that is a very difficult journey and leads to burnout, right? And we don't know all of the basically post-traumatic effects that we're going to show years down the road from our caregivers having given care through the time of pandemic, especially in cycles uh, when hospitalizations are really up. So we really need, we really leaned into this idea of self-care, care for, and, and that self-care, yeah, it's getting to bed on time and it is eating healthy and it is getting their exercise. But we really opened that up to say, what are spiritual practices? What are contemplative practices that can really support you as a caregiver? So that was a very cool exercise. So we, the course is that piece of it. And so we were able to have students Um, each of them, when they start, actually before we started the course, over a period of four weeks, they were challenged to do their contemplative practice um, daily and uh, log about that, uh, journal about that experience of doing their contemplative practice. And that became one of our learning activities was to hear from each other about what did it mean to do this contemplative practice and how could they take that forward. So trying to actually give them tools Um, that they could use caring forward in a very practical way to care for themselves. And then the other piece is, of course, how do you care for your patients and their families, also including in a time of pandemic. So we had um, very concrete learning we did around uh, providing spiritual support. And with that, in the context of religious diversity, so spiritual support one size does not fit all. So we were spent a lot of time talking also about different um, religious traditions and what might be meaningful in those cases. And the bigger the bigger piece of suffering, how do we manage social suffering? How do we manage individual suffering? What does it mean to make to suffer? How do we make meaning in times of suffering? So it's some pretty deep um conversations that we designed learning activities to take us into those conversations. Um, so, so, so Cheryl, can, can you, that. can you talk to me a little bit about contemplative practices? What, what were you doing in that context? Yeah. So there is, uh, you know, some contemplative practices. We were framing it knowing that not all of our students come from a Christian tradition, that we have um, obviously diversity in our classrooms as well. So we use the frame of contemplative practices. Um, There's a a website I can provide you uh, that has a tree of contemplative practices, but it shows the idea that you are reflective, that you pull back from your immediate situation, and that just a practice of contemplation, trying to open up a different space for yourself, can really enrich the, the spiritual life. So examples of what the students were doing, a lot of them do gravitate towards um, Bible reading and prayer. So for sure that was part of it. But some of them were doing uh, a daily walk, a prayer walk. I'll tell you about one of our uh, students who's now an alum. So she she decided she wanted to do a morning prayer walk. They live in a lovely area of the, the province. And so she, and then she was telling her mom about this because by now our students had relocated home um, because of the uh, directives from the university in the province so she and her mom went every morning for a beautiful walk they sat by the lake and they did not speak no speaking until the last few minutes on their walk home they would have a little quiet talk that's exactly it that there's our tree of contemplative practices so uh-huh. this idea so they picked up so that you can see on that there's a lot of different examples of what might what might be taken up as contemplative practice some students take up um, yoga so a different types of exercise service somebody picked up service as a contemplative practice, which is pretty cool. You got to get your head around that a little bit. What does it mean to, and so she used her activity volunteering with a youth group actually as her contemplative practice. So it's all in in how it's framed to be uh, thoughtful in those ways. We were chatting um, before we started this podcast going through, how, how are you doing? And I answered, I'm, I'm not unwell. And he said, well, that was an interesting answer. And I said, well, for me, it's, 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 the, it's, it's the extremes of what mm-hmm. we're dealing with. There's been some moments during this pandemic where we've been doing some amazing work, some groundbreaking work and disrupting higher education and trying to create models and learning activities and frames that I truly, I believe, is going to shift higher education to, to provide a, um, 
and education that really matters in the 21st century. Then, you know, the dynamics of dealing with, uh, in my case, family members and friends who are suffering because of of COVID, and then a group mm-hmm. of activists and friends who are deep, deep into speaking truth to power and Black Lives Matter. So th- there's no stillness, and this idea mm-hmm. of stillness practices. And we've just mm-hmm. had our Trinity Western Faculty uh, retreat, and, and we started it off with, you know, be still my soul contemplative practice. Can you give a few thoughts on, and I'm, maybe I'm looking for my own therapy, but I'm just trying to get to some stillness. I'm just finding it very difficult. (laughs) Yeah, I know it is, right? And I think that's our role, Scott, demands such immediate responses to such pragmatic um, logistics. Lots of of our work right now is about pragmatics and logistics, which doesn't feed the soul in my case. I think for some people that is very – that really gets them in their happy place, but that's – that's so no so I think that really does call f- a, almost like a different discipline from us to say how am I going to create um, a rhythm in my life where I am I am able to enter into these um, places that are life giving and and that stillness as you say so there is I think the um, uh, whatever I mean that looks different for different people so so in my you know what's interesting so I'll tell you I I tend to be somebody who writes my way through difficult things so I do journal and when I picked up my journal though Scott get this from March 15th through till July when I was finally on vacation there was not a lot written there so Mm. what's with that so that really was about not having that, like, so hard to get into that space of stillness. I'm So I'm resonating with you more than saying I naturally easily have the answer. But, you know, this is going to be a rhythm for a while, Scott. So we have to build time into our lives to let us check out. So so my two weeks of vacation by the ocean side helped me do that. But I am really realizing for myself, I am going to have to block off times in my calendar when I am not available for meetings. I am not available for these endless emails. I think we're going to have to be way more uh, diligent in how we manage our Outlook calendars. Yeah. And there we go again. We're back to that word being intentional. And mm-hmm. I guess that's part of this moment of building yeah. intentionality to create those times okay, where we can be unintentional. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. To hold them in balance. Those two. Yeah. yeah. Well, Cheryl, we've reached the point of the podcast. We're going to spin the Yara wheel. You, you ready to give that a spin? <laughs> Let's do it. Here we go. Which living person do you most admire? What is it that you most dislike? When and where were you happiest? Which historical figure do you most identify with? How does your faith show up in your teaching? What is your greatest extravagance? What is your most treasured possession? Which talent would you most like to have? What is your greatest fear? Okay, it landed on when and where were you the most happiest? (laughs) Those are such great questions, Scott. Oh, my goodness. Um, So place is super important to me. I think um, from my growing up years on the flattest prairie you can imagine, um, place and growing up uh, rural on a, on a farm. My family is farmers. So this idea of place, and it's an, also an indig- indigenous concept, really, right? Like how rooted are we to place? So right. my times of happiness always have me very tuned to my surroundings. And they to, do tend to need to be surroundings that where there's, a, where there's an openness in some way. So I missed my trip to the prairies this summer where I have that where I can cast my eyes. So the equivalent of that in BC is either a mountaintop where I can cast my eyes or uh, Oceanside where I, where I can cast my eyes. And so indeed, my happy place uh, most recently was by, uh, yeah, an ocean view with my family. So the relational piece. So that that absolutely is my happy place is my people and uh, a place where I can cast my eyes, stretch my eyes is what we call it. Stretch your eyes towards those horizons of happiness. I like it. 
<laughs> so, yeah. Cheryl, you know, it is it is summer. So um, who are you reading? Are you reading anyone this summer for, well, for your scholarship? Or oh, are, you yeah. re- are you reading anyone for fun? Yeah, so this is kind of fun. So I do. In, so when I'm on vacation, um, uh, it's uh, such light reading. So I read John Grisham. I read a Canadian novelist, um, Terry Fallis, who does political satire. I read um, Jonas Jonasson from Sweden that he first wrote the hundred year old man who climbed out the window. Um, and this summer I read um, another one of his books. So crazy, right? So I need to read books that make me laugh. That's what right. I do in the summer is books that make me laugh. But the rest of the time, you know, I have been reading and making a point of, I brought, brought a couple of books here to just cue myself. Um, so books that relate to what we're on about um, right now in nursing. So I picked up a book in the UK last year when I was there with our project and it really, it hit the Sunday times best seller list there the language of kindness a nurse's story so that was a pretty pretty cool uh, first person account but she she's writes in a way that's pretty um captures uh the essence of nursing so the language of kindness so it's reading that then in tanzania i picked up the best book um we went to a fantastic bookstore somebody opened it up just for us uh university bookstore in a suburb or in a cool neighborhood close to the university and I picked up a book about Tanzania, a second generation nation in a globalized world, Tanzania's challenges since Uhuru, which is their word for, ten- for independence. So I love reading things like that, that help me understand the context of the world, what's going on. Um, so I'm, so I'm trying to disrupt my um, vantage point or trying to disrupt the glasses I'm wearing and looking through. So on that edge, what my real work for this, uh, my real reading right now, the three books I've got on the go are reading Indigenous writers. And so actually just before we met, I was speaking with two Indigenous colleagues and how um, what can be done about Indigenous perspectives in, in nursing and really building the field of Indigenous health. So I was reading The Inconvenient Indian, Thomas King, which is kind of cool. He writes as if there's not the 49th parallel doesn't exist, right? So the, the, the what was a, contigu- a contiguous space. So Thomas King Inconvenient Indian, A Curious Account of Native People in North America. Then I am reading a beautiful book in my own moccasins, A Memoir of Resilience by Helen Knott. And she uh, grew up in um, northern Alberta. So that picks up themes of residential schools and the impact intergenerational trauma. And then I just had recommended to me by my my colleague, uh, a book by Jesse Thistle, The Ashes, which has become a national bestseller in Canada, The Story of Being Métis, Homeless and Finding My Way. So Jesse Thistle is a... Uh, academic, where is he now? He is uh, one of the universities in Canada and has written a very thought-provoking book. So that's what I'm reading, Scott. So kind of a mix of things. That 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 that's a full agenda. Yeah, <laughs> I, and I don't actually have a lot of time to. I don't. Yeah, as I'm sure as York, I don't have a lot of time to read. So it's I am somebody who kind of um, samples out of books. I'm my husband teases me because he'll read a book like verbatim, cover to cover, and even if he's slogging through the most boring part, and if it's going to take him a month to read that chapter, gosh darn, he is going to read and understand every word, and. <laughs> I can't, I'm not that kind of a reader. I tend to be a little bit of a sampler, reading the beginning, the end, and then trying to pick up what the themes are and reading spe- special parts of the book. So um, interesting how we read, hey? All right. I, I'm going to suggest that you pick up the book there, there. Hey, Scott, tell me what you're reading. Well, I just finished reading and, and it, 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 it's, it's amazing because this was a project that I've been involved with for I don't know, seven, eight years now. And it actually stemmed out of an independent study that I was able to do with uh, Michael Hebb. And we did a, a, a class where we invited um, healthcare providers, philanthropists, insurance folks, doctors, nurses, oncologists to have a conversation. And we called it, let's have dinner and talk about death. The most important conversation mm-hmm. we don't know how to have. And we ran this as a pragmatic course to develop a set of resources to shift the national conversation. And out of that came out the, the deathoverdinner.org, where we now, I think, um, I think there's been 2 million dinners 
use mm. this model that we've created. You go through the website, you generate a menu, generate a set of prompts, how to have dinner and talk about death with your loved ones, how to have dinner and talk about death with your coworkers, how to have dinner and talk about death with your family. And Michael Hebb just, uh, he wrote the book, Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner. And, you know, I got, the, I think the book came out about a year ago, but I hadn't taken the time to read it because I was actually part of the project and the research. Yeah, you kind of knew what it was going to say. Yeah, but it was fascinating to go back and reread anytime there's a reification and a written document of work, you know, and it's an invitation and guide to life's most important conversation. So it's it's kind of neat to read about work that you've been really close um, to. So, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, I'll look for that. Okay, Cheryl. Well, we're winding down uh, our, our conversation. It, it's been it's it's been a it's been a real joy. Um, are there any particular new projects or things that you're you're able to talk about right now um, that you're looking forward to? Well, I am. So obviously, the the launch of the PhD program is uh, taking a lot of our attention and um, wisdom at this point. So I would say that as a new project. Uh, another curriculum project is um, more attention to Indigenous perspectives in our nursing curricula. So that is going to get a lot of attention uh, over the next year with the partnerships and collaborations we have. And you know, it's really, it's the Albinism Project has a lot of opportunity to open up to be more. So um, exploring some of those uh, those directions to know where that might go. I am co-investigator on quite a few different research teams. And so I'll try to lean in and contribute to those. And all of those are massively exciting as well. So yeah, so this is, this is why I start off to say, tell me something good today. It's about how great is it to be um, part of higher education and uh, um, both in what I can take away for myself. It's very meaningful for me, um, but also in large part, it's meaningful because of how we feel it can contribute to a better world. And I think I'd be remiss in thinking about one, the luminariness that you bring to the table <laughs> and uh, <laughs> how do we build a better world? If I didn't ask you about the knowledge as action framework. Oh, oh yeah. I love that project. So that. That, um, okay, so knowledge is action. What that means is that it is about, the, the premise behind it is there's a whole world of fantastic science and knowledge generation and knowledge development that happens all the time through our scientific enterprises, our research enterprises. And what happens though is how is that truly taken up at the bedside? It's a bit of your question about how does my, my education strategy matter at the point of care to make sure we capture that. So same idea, how do we make sure that this latest evidence is taken up in practice. So super timely in a time of COVID and all of the public discourse that's gone on around that. So this was an initiative that also came out of a palliative care context. So when you talk about your um, dinner and death project, this is sort of along those lines is a project where we were looking at how can the principles of a palliative care be taken up into other populations that equally need those same kinds of principles. And and with colleagues, what we were exploring as a sub-project within that broader project led out of UVic was how this can't just be a transmission thing where we come with a knowledge product and give it to physicians and nurses and social workers and say, ta-da, this is how you do it. But that the, we, the, you have to get more involved in the messiness of where knowledge is taken up. So therefore, it's not knowledge to action, but it's knowledge as action based on the philosophic premise that uh, it, it not, something isn't knowledge until it's enacted, right? Like before that, it's information, but it actually becomes knowledge once it's used and worked with and embodied um, in a person and in a group of people. So that's, in a, in a way, that's kind of a philosophic way to start. And we created this cool metric. I think part of the reason why that has grabbed some attention is we created this cool metric to show of our our figure for that knowledge is action model is a kite yeah. and meaning that you can have all kinds of great ideas and initiatives but you're not going to get that kite to fly until you've got some uptake of it but you can have a cross current and just crash the whole thing down so it's trying to have a vision an image that can say um 
remind you that uh, flying a kite is actually pretty high tech or high high technology. There's lots of forces at work in uh, flying a kite. So that's why we use that image. We use that as a curricular, intercurricular model for our master's program. We use the knowledge as action model. We've just um, had published. I can send you a link for that as well. So we've written an yep. article about how we developed it in the School of Nursing. So we've um, just pleased to have that out now in in the in the broader world about how to do this in higher education and online no less we framed it as an online knowledge translation curriculum for graduate students so i think that's and it's definitely interdisciplinary it works great in nursing but you sure can take it beyond and uh, yeah i've heard from more research teams that are using this it's quite relevant in the indigenous way of being to try to have a bit more of a holistic approach to knowledge translation that you're working together and there's many aspects that we need to take into account so yeah so we're kind of hopeful that there'll this this kite's going to take up and fly um as far as the knowledge as action framework goes yeah so thanks for asking about that yeah well you know whether it's irony or the wind blows where it pleases the idea that Mm. in the context of physical distancing and isolation sort of being an exile we're really truly understanding we are stronger together um yeah so to wind up i'm going to quote you here um Uh you wrote You wrote, in my view, the spectrum of diversity is part of the human story at its best, where systems, institutions, and Mm. individuals mobilize power to disadvantage others. Health and social inequities result. All of the human family is then negatively impacted. I just want to thank you for your work to flip the script on that so that we can work in in more positive ways, not only in our own self-care, but how we carefully move to create education and learning that is benefit to all. So thank you. Thank you for your contributions and your, for your, for your work. Oh, you're most welcome. Yeah. My pleasure. Thanks Scott for the chance to chat this morning. Okay. Sure. Well, be well. And, um, again, you've been listening to learning matters, a bridge to practice, and we'll be talking together again real soon. Mm-hmm.